Good morning and welcome. My name is Brian from Valleytown Church, and we're doing a sermon today in Romans chapter 9, which is some of the most challenging verses in the whole Bible to consider. Paul himself is grieved when considering these thoughts, and I would argue so is God. It's possible that many of these verses you might find offensive. Paul anticipates some of that argument, and he tries in his attempts to plead with the reader to convince them of the truth and to convince them to place their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah that God sent. So as I read these passages today, it's possible that you might be offended by them. If this is the first sermon you've heard from me, I might recommend you listen to something else. Uh, go find one of my older sermons about happier material. Although God himself might be sovereign in his choice to choose for you to listen to this one as a means for him to reach out to you, to invite you into his family. So we started last week in Romans chapter 9, and I've read through the first 13 or so, 12 or so verses. We're going to pick up today at, at verse 11, and I'm, going to, I'm hoping to hit another chunk uh, in which we'll look at Jacob and Esau and Pharaoh and Moses and try to consider what is Paul saying about God? What is Paul saying in his argument here? Who is he arguing with, right? What is his line of thought throughout this whole passage? Because when we approach these passages with especially a Western mind, we might think he's saying something completely different. And it's very possible that that is the correct interpretation. Within the family of believers, right, there are multiple ways to look at and interpret these passages. Uh, they're hard, possibly, to consider. But here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through some of these and, and let's wrestle with this. Right? I'm humbly going to come to these verses and realize right, many have studied the scriptures before me and have come to different conclusions. And so there's a chance right, that I'm wrong. Right? <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I hope that through reading these passages, as well as many other supporting texts, we can try to consider and tease out what is Paul saying and what is God like. So here we go. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, we're, we're in the middle of it now, right? You could probably tell. Uh, and so this passage, right, it's talking about that these two children had not even been born, they hadn't done good or evil, and yet God is somehow speaking about their lives, one, that the older will serve the younger, and two, that one of them he loved and the other he hated. There's a story about a seminary student that goes up uh, and asks his professor about this passage. And he's like, I'm having a hard time with this. And the professor says, that's, that's weird. I'm having a hard time with that passage as well. And the student's like, I don't understand, right? What, do you, what is God saying here? Esau, I've hated. And the professor kind of points out, he's like, actually, I have a hard time with the, for a completely different reason. I'm having a hard time how he could have loved Jacob. Right? Which if we think about the human heart, uh, right, the rebellion, the attitude, the sinfulness that's in us and our, 
our rebelliousness towards God, we rightly deserve the judgment that he could pour out on us. But it's amazing that God chooses to be compassionate, merciful, and gracious towards sinners like us. That God shows his love to us even when we were his enemies, while we were still sinners, Paul thinks about in Romans chapter 5. And what's, what's interesting here is regarding grace, none of us deserve salvation. Romans chapter 3, all of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. And so we're all sinners by both nature and choice. And yet God still chooses to show mercy towards us. And so when it comes to God speaking about his loving one and hating the other, it's possible I could soften the blow of that verse by looking to some of the things that Jesus said. In Luke chapter 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In Matthew's account of the same moment, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me. And so we could argue like, okay, so Jesus and this, this word that's being used regarding hatred, it could be a matter of loving more or loving less. It could be a matter of who are you devoted to, right? You cannot serve two masters, right? You will either love one and despise the other. It could be coming at it from that sort of angle, where God chose to work through Jacob and his lineage rather than that of Esau's, right? And so it's clear that God didn't favor Esau. Yet at the same time, it's possible that God could kind of both love, hate Esau. And I want to leave some space to that. I don't want to just kind of button up this verse in a convenient way to make us feel more comfortable about it, right? That, that God could have a complex set of emotions towards him. Because after all, even right New Testament belief, God both loves us and gave himself for us, desires for us to repent, but also is planning on the just judgment of his creation that he's planning on bringing to justice all who refuse him. And so it seems as though God could kind of have some complex emotions. I would point out that God commands in Acts 17 all people everywhere to repent. All, all people, right? He's inviting the whole world into relationship with him. Or in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we know what God's heart and desire is for humanity. God wants us to turn, to repent, to follow him, to trust in him, and experience life and freedom and forgiveness. But yet at the same time, it would be right for a holy God to hate sin. Right? The book of Proverbs, there are seven things that God hates, right? That word is actually used. And even in Psalms, the concept of his hatred of those who sin is expressed. But what I want us to think about is that it is right that God would hate the evil that people do. He would hate the way that it harms them and others around them, that it 
defiles and ruins and pollutes his good creation. All right, but that's something I want us to consider is he could both love and hate his creation. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but also he might hate those who will forever choose to reject him and to bring harm to those who follow him, right? Like God could have that complex of a feeling. Think about Eve, for instance, when her older son Cain kills Abel. How would she have felt about Cain? She probably both loved her son and at the same time hated at least the things that he did and possibly sometimes hated even him. Or I think about King David, who he is this man after God's own heart, and yet one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. How do you feel about that kid? His other son then plans and plots the murder of that brother to bring him to justice because David never does anything about it. How does David feel about that son? The son that murdered the first brother ends up eventually plotting an overthrow of the entire government in which many people are killed. And he actually sleeps with David's concubines, right? Like, which we won't get into that whole mess right now. But I just want to point out, like, all of this happens and David's army ends up pursuing this, this rebellious son and one of them ends up finally killing him. And David responds at the end of the day with grief. And his own soldiers, one of his captains, tells him, Listen, it seems as though you would have preferred that all of us died and this son of yours lived. He's like, if you don't respond differently now, not a single soldier will follow you at the end of this day. So I just want to point out, like, a parent can have very complex feelings towards their kids when they do wicked things like that. And so it's possible God could be the same way. That God could both love and also hate the sin that we do and know the end choice of each individual. It's a hard thing to consider. But it's also possible that he's not specifically talking about Esau here. It's also possible that he's referring to the, descendant, the descendants of Esau, specifically the nation of Edom. And in fact, when Paul's quoting these two verses, one is in Genesis, spoken to Rebecca, 1900 BC, and the other is written in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, about 400 BC. That these verses are written over 1500 years apart, and that it's not until Malachi that, that God says how he loved Jacob, and he's speaking to the people of Israel, if you read Malachi chapter 1. And he's speaking of Edom, the descendants of Esau, in that same chapter. So it's possible he's referring to the choices of that nation and not some pre-born Esau that he chose before time began to hate for arbitrary reasons. Right? So you could kind of play that idea out and consider that, that potential reality. And why would God hate Edom? <laughs> Just in case you're wondering, like, uh, Brian, I don't know how it's any better hating an entire nation of people rather than just one person. Uh, but Edom themselves, they actually, as descendants of Esau, they attack the nation of Israel at one point. And God might have expressed that attitude towards them in a 
chosen to bring them to judgment based all the way back on the promises and the covenant that he made with Abraham, that he would bless those who bless him and that he would curse those who would hinder them, right? That those who dishonor him, that he would curse. And so when we consider, did God hate Esau specifically? Maybe, right? I don't want to just dodge this verse out of comfort and convenience, okay? But it might have been referring to the attitudes and behaviors of a nation. But I would say, even though Paul in Romans 9 said this was before they were born and before any of them had done good or evil, I would lean towards suggesting that God comes to his conclusion, yes, on the way they live, on what they do. And that Paul's emphasis on before they had done good or evil is pointing out God's omniscience and knowing the end before the beginning, right? And knowing what's going to come to pass and not that he's arbitrarily picking which one to love or hate prior to their knowing, doing anything good or evil, like with somehow removing the knowledge of their actions and their ways from his thoughts prior to his picking. All right, it just might be like God knew what they were going to do, and as a result, he chose the younger to lead the older. So anyways, nonetheless, nonetheless. So uh, Paul is making this case in Romans chapter 9, and you might be like, okay, this is, this is interesting. <laughs> like, why would, why would God do this? Like, what's, why is Paul bringing this up? Uh, is Paul making the point that God chooses people uh, from before they're born and just chooses some to love and others to hate, un, uh, unaffected by any of their future actions? Is that what Paul is saying? And based on the next verse, some might argue that's absolutely what Paul is saying because some people in Paul's mind are going to object to this claim by saying that God is unjust. In Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And so Paul is anticipating some cry of injustice based on his reader's response. And so who is Paul arguing with? Is Paul arguing with the person who is saying it's unjust for God to pick a person unconditionally before they're born? Right? That perhaps that might be the natural reading that you and I would have when we read that passage. Or is he anticipating the objection of a Jewish reader based on the rest of this chapter, who the people who he loves and is trying to, to reach and compel to come to Christ? Where he's anticipating like they're going to be like it's an unjust for god to show grace and compassion to the gentiles and to overlook his own chosen people and i would argue that it's the second right that they are decrying god is unjust for overlooking it seems momentarily his own chosen people and in fact in romans chapter 3 the same type of argument from a jewish perspective is made Romans 3, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned? A sinner. And so, right, they're making this argument of like, okay, so like God overlooks us, and our, but our, our sin and unrighteousness and crucifying Christ, let's say, 
Uh, if that somehow glorified God in the end, who's he to judge us now? It's the same argument of like, wouldn't God be unjust for acting that way? And I'll let you read that chapter on your own <laughs> if you want to investigate it. And so I would argue that it isn't unjust for God to select some people for service and not for others. Because this isn't necessarily talking about salvation, although Paul definitely eventually gets there. Right? It's not unjust for God to choose Abraham over the nations, or Isaac over Ishmael, or Jacob over Esau, and generations later to choose David over Saul. Right? That, that God continues to do this, and he chooses a line for the sake of the, the, the family through whom he's going to bless the nations of the world. That it's fair for God to do that. It's also not unjust for God to choose those who by faith obtain righteousness over those who attempted to obtain righteousness by works. That God can arrange salvation in any way that he so choose. And if he chooses to show mercy on those who have faith over those who try to work for it, he's allowed to do that. And that's not unjust. And that's what Paul argues later on in the chapter. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And so notice, in the mind of Paul, this is where his argument's going. And it, it kind of conveys who he thinks he's arguing with. Someone who's saying it's unjust for God to overlook my works and my family heritage to show mercy on the Gentiles who didn't work for it, but merely attained righteousness by faith. So that's what I would argue. It's, it's fair for God to arrange salvation any which way he wishes. And I would actually argue it's a broader salvation that he's offering in this way. Instead of it being selected only for the Jewish descendants, he's now inviting the whole world to repentance and life. And so I would argue that Paul is right, trying to reach these people, even those who would say it's unjust of God to do so. And Paul's making an argument from their own history. He says, you didn't think it was unjust when God chose Jacob over Esau, and now you're saying it's unjust if God chooses those who would come to him by faith rather than your own heritage and your own good works. And so you can kind of see the type of point that Paul's making. He's using their own history and their own scriptures to try to paint them into a corner to hopefully come to the point of placing their faith in God's Messiah from among their own people. And God has encountered this attitude of being decried as unjust before, even from his own chosen people. In fact, in Ezekiel 18, the prophet Ezekiel says, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? It is your ways that are not just. When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, 
when, here's the more hopeful version, right? When a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. And that language, by the way, I'm not arguing that we are somehow able to save ourselves, but no, it's actually the same language that even Peter uses in Acts chapter 2, right? In which he says, well, he's preaching, and it shall come to pass, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then in verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then later on in verse 40, he concludes, it says, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so is Peter arguing that we as humans can save ourselves? No. He's saying you need to call upon the name of the Lord and so be saved. That some of that responsibility lands on us in our response to God and his gospel. And back in Ezekiel, okay, I realize I'm like, you know, three layers down in this. Let me back out one layer. Back in Ezekiel, Right? Ezekiel's arguing, you're arguing that God is unjust for judging people based on their ways. He's like, but no, God's not unjust. If a wicked person turns from their sin, that person will save themselves. They'll save his life. He continues, verse 28, because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just, right? They're arguing, no, 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 that person doesn't get to turn. They don't get to repent. They don't get to come to God by faith, right? They're accusing God of injustice for showing that previously wicked individual mercy and forgiveness. And then he says, O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. And so notice, what does God judge? Okay, what does God judge? Does he judge people on the basis of who he chose before they were born? Right, before they did any good or evil? Or, as what he's saying here, he's going to judge them according to their ways. That God selects in his own foresight, or based on their own actions, how he will judge them. And it's according to their ways. And notice, what does he continue in verse 30? Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die? O house of Israel, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And so notice, we see the same sort of argument, right? Like, they're accusing God of injustice in the Old Testament, but he says, hey, listen, you can turn now. You can change your mind. You can cast away from yourself your sins and transgressions and iniquity, right? That if a wicked person turns from these things, they will live that God chooses to show that person mercy. And if they choose not to, he will judge them. And not because he chose them unconditionally for judgment, 
But no, he judges them according to their ways. Okay, and so we can, we can see what God's advice is to these people. And in a moment, we'll actually look at the idea, hopefully I get to it today, of God hardening hearts, which is a di another difficult topic to consider, right? But nonetheless, here, God is asking them to bring about a new heart and a new spirit, which is suggesting that if someone's heart is bent towards iniquity and sin, they don't have to stay that way. That as God pleads with them, as God reaches out to them, as God extends his arms to them, has them open before them, crying out to them, they could choose to turn. And that's exactly what God asks them to do. That it wasn't causally determined from before they were born, the way that their heart would be or remain. And yet what's interesting about this here is in Ezekiel 18, God's asking them to give themselves a new heart. In Ezekiel 11, he says, he's the one who will give them a new heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their, uh, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh." that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. And so here, once again, God is speaking that he's now going to be the one giving them a new heart, and the people that he does this for are those who would turn away and cast aside the transgressions and abominations of the land that he's bringing them into. But those whose hearts choose to adhere to those things and go after them, God judges them and brings their deeds on their own heads. That, so what we've seen here is that God judges people according to their ways and according to their deeds. That we have some responsibility regarding our own hearts, and that as we turn to God, he will himself also give us a new heart. All right, and so we start seeing some of these ideas play out, that God's justice is based on deeds and the ways of the people. Another interesting passage to consider when it comes to our heart attitudes and hardness and, and whether we come to God, as well as this whole argument about God being unjust, Jesus outlines in a parable in Luke chapter, I think it's 16, but now I'm wondering if it's 15. You'll know. It's fine. You'll figure it out. And it's the story about the prodigal son. And there's two things to consider here. The prodigal son's own heart, as well as the heart of the older brother who decries injustice and is angry towards his father. And so let's see, verse 21, as the son comes to the dad, he says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet and, I, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
Okay, one more topic that we're going to delve into at least partially right now. Because Romans chapter 9 significantly shapes the way we consider uh, the way God's whole method of salvation works. And one of the doctrines, one of the ways that you can interpret these scriptures, right, the Calvinist approach, which are absolutely our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We love them and they edify the body. They are necessary in the body of believers. But one of the things they'll consider is this idea of, of deadness, that those who have not yet come to Christ, they are dead in their sins, Ephesians chapter 2. And the argument from analogy is that dead people can't do anything. We can't even respond to God's plea for us to repent, that God must therefore be the one that does all of it. But notice, deadness in the scriptures isn't always to be interpreted that way. That the father in the prodigal son narrative was describing his son as being formerly dead, but now he's been brought to newness of life, right, is what he's describing here. That deadness does not always mean completely unable to respond. Okay, and so I just want us to consider that. There's also a passage in Revelations 3. Yeah, I realize I'm getting off in so many weeds, but it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. We'll take our time with this. Revelation 3, God, uh, Jesus tells John to write to the church of Sardis. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then he tells them to do a bunch of things. He tells them to wake up as though it's their responsibility, to strengthen what remains, to remember what they heard, to keep the things that they remember, and to repent. And he tells them even the converse of that. Like he says, if you will not wake up, then he will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And so just a point about deadness, deadness does not somehow mean we have no ability to respond to God's pleas, to respond to God's gospel and his word, okay? And so, uh, in the case of the prodigal son, or Ephesians 2, when describing those who have not yet come to Christ, that does not mean that they are uh, unable to respond to the word of God. Whereas, I would view it as, right, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. That hearing the gospel has the ability to produce in us a choice to respond, whether to receive Jesus as our Lord and Messiah or to reject him. And that just because we're dead in sin doesn't mean, well, I'm off the hook. I didn't have any ability to choose anyway. And so the scriptures don't necessarily interpret deadness this way. And earlier on in Luke 16, it actually describes the prodigal son when he's in the pigsty. Verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself, right, came to his own senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, uh, against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so we see that even one who was referred to as dead was able to come to their own senses as in this case, circumstances got bad enough for them that they realized their father loved them and that he should return to the household. So he came to himself, he doesn't deny his sin, and he intends on confessing it, in fact, to his father. And so this whole scene happens. The prodigal son returns, the father throws a feast, and notice the response of the older son. It's the same response that Paul is anticipating in Romans chapter 9, 
to some of his readers, that they're going to cry out that this is an injustice, what the father has done to the prodigal son, or what God is doing to those who are Gentiles. Now, verse 25, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in and notice the heart of the father. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. All right. He's making a case that his father is unjust for showing mercy towards his brother. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older son makes an accusation against the father regarding justice. He's saying that the father is unjust for showing mercy and grace towards his younger brother. Actually, he doesn't even refer to him as his brother. He says, this son of yours, right? He doesn't even want to associate with him. And notice the father nonetheless pursues a further relationship with this offended son. He entreated with him and Paul is doing the same thing, right? Paul is doing the same thing in Romans chapter nine. He says, I anticipate that yes, you're offended, that God would choose to overlook you and your family heritage in order to make salvation available to all who would come to him by faith. I anticipate that you think that's an injustice, but let me explain to you why. And he goes to their history, right? And he compels them to, to come to God by faith in the same way. And he says, listen, your fathers have done this before you. And so why would it be a surprise that, that God might be doing the same thing in your generation? And so the father in the prodigal son story, he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead once again and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so the father's response is it was fitting. It was appropriate to celebrate like this. It was good. It was just for him to show mercy towards this brother to welcome him and celebrate in this particular way. And so when we read through Romans chapter nine, Paul is anticipating the same kind of opposition and argument and cry of injustice. But I don't think Paul is anticipating, nor do I think it's entered his mind that God is one who is judging those before they were born, before they did it good or evil, unrelated to any of that, but unconditionally chooses some for love and others for hatred. Because we've seen in Ezekiel, right, that, that God judges people based on their ways and based on their deeds. And that even when we've done wickedness, as Ezekiel said, we have the opportunity, the option of responding, of turning and trusting in God of turning to his ways rather than living according to his own ways. Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy 
on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so this word, it, right, the way we interpret that is, is massive to how we walk away from this whole chapter. Okay, what does it mean? Does it mean uh, salvation? Right, that God can just simply choose who to save unrelated to who they are and how they act? Right, is it, is it this uh, irresistible grace of his, this uh, unconditional election of individuals that Paul is talking about here? Is, is it referring to God's election, but not to necessarily salvation, but election to service? To be able to choose some individuals for the sake of being his chosen people, to bear the word of God uh, and even be the ones through whom the Messiah would come, right? Is, does it refer to the full breadth of whether or not you're saved or not? Or does it refer to God as choosing your family for this particular purpose of service? It could be, right? Is it referring to uh, his resisting, right? This idea that God isn't going to accept a salvation by works, but is choosing to accept a salvation by faith, right? Or by grace through faith is probably the way I should say it, right? And so the context of the quote here, uh, that because Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, all right? This When he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, he's calling back once again to the nation of Israel's own history. And what he's describing is the moment in which the people of Israel, right, upon Moses meeting with God and receiving the Ten Commandments, it's the moment in which the people of Israel create this golden calf and worship it as the God that rescued them from slavery. And God ends up bringing judgment on some of these people. 3,000 of them are killed, and then God chooses to stop, and he shows mercy on the remaining people, even though all of them were worthy of judgment. And so even this passage is one in which their own people had been shown mercy that they didn't deserve. And Paul, in a sense, is arguing, he's like, if God showed mercy to the people of your own family then, isn't God also allowed to show mercy to any who would come to him by faith? Isn't God allowed to do that? Right? And it, de it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God, the one who shows mercy, he can choose how he arranges that mercy to be experienced. That God is free to make that choice. Now, when it says the phrase, it depends not on human will or exertion. Right? You could begin to see like, oh, oh, wait a minute, I thought I had like a free will choice here, but I guess I don't. I guess it doesn't depend on my will, right? And you could walk away with that interpretation very easily. And it's possible that that's the right interpretation. I don't think so based on the other scriptures, but it's, it's possible. Smarter people than me have come to that conclusion. But the NIV, it says it this way, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but God's mercy, right? I would agree that this could be read, okay? That salvation depends not on human will or exertion, that somehow it's unrelated to human will. It's God simply elects some for mercy and others for condemnation, right? That he could choose who to save. 
And whether our will, with our will or without it, he could just choose. And, and our choice, it doesn't matter. His choice is irresistible. We can't object to it. And if he chose us for mercy, well, I guess that's it. I, I don't have any choice in the matter. It's possible that that's what it means. It doesn't necessarily mean that individual salvation, however, requires any response uh, from the human will. It might, it might not be referring to this. Uh, consider this. What I think it's referring to as it here, if it is salvific in implication, is that I cannot will for God to save in the means by which I want him to. Right? It's not my own creativity to construct my own version of religion, of Judaism, of Christianity, and say, this is the way, God, that you must save people. That it's not according to my own uh, judgment of what I think are good deeds or evil deeds of who should be saved and who shouldn't be saved. It is not up to my will. I don't get to pick who and how God saves people. Right? And we've already seen in Ezekiel and in Romans 9, people will regularly decry that God is unjust, but it's not up to them. God is the just judge of all the earth. He gets to pick how to arrange salvation. And so I can't will for God to save me and have mercy on me, even if I refuse to ever live for him, to come to him, to repent and cease my sin. I can't be like, God, I think you should actually just save everyone, even if they don't love you, if they don't care about you, right? Even if they choose to live in their sin. I can't will for God to do that. I can't will for God to rescue all people, even though they're idolaters. I can't will for God to somehow rescue all people like, and become a universalist in which everyone will be saved. I can't will for God to save people based on their being Irish or Finnish or Jewish. I literally have no ability to will God into a corner into how he chooses to save people. Okay, and this is similar to Ephesians 2 with another use of the word it that's some potentially hard to interpret. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Okay, and so what's interesting is in the, the language, the Greek, the use of the word it, there's a gender neuter version of that word that therefore disconnects it from both the grace, which is a feminine word, and faith, which is feminine word. And so it's disconnected from both of those. So that I can't say that it is the gift of God, is referring to merely his grace. And I also can't say that it is connected necessarily to the faith that I have to receive his grace and mercy and salvation. And so I would argue that the word it is talking about the package deal of salvation itself. Salvation by grace through faith. That whole thing is a gift of God that he didn't have to arrange it that way. That God could choose to save by grace those who would receive by faith. That God is able and allowed to do that. Okay, that, that, that's what I think this is talking about. And so God's offer of mercy is completely up to him. And God, it seems, chooses to show mercy on those who place their faith in Jesus, the Messiah promised through and for the Jewish people. That God chooses to credit righteousness to those who have faith. And so when Paul says it depends not on human will or exertion, I want to point out, remember how Paul concludes 
the chapter. That it's possible when he's saying human will or exertion, let's read verse 30 again. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Right? They didn't pursue. They weren't seeking. They weren't willing. They weren't trying to make it happen. But that Israel who pursued, okay, they were willing, they were exerting a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so what I'd point out is that Paul concludes that in this chapter, that we're saved not on the basis of works, but by faith. And so when he's saying the phrase that it's not of will or exertion, it's possible that that's the context he's thinking about. Those who are by their own will and their own effort and their own exertion trying to gain righteousness and favor with God through law-keeping. And that's not the way that God chose to accredit righteousness. That's not the way that God chose to distribute his mercy. That God can show mercy on whom he shows mercy and compassion on whom he shows compassion, that God could arrange salvation in this particular way, and as a result, they're offended. And Paul anticipates that. In fact, he's quoting from the Old Testament, which anticipated this exact offense, that they stumbled over the stumbling stone, that instead of receiving as a gift the salvation and mercy and forgiveness that God gives us, they're choosing to continue striving according to law and works. And as a result, they're not going to attain the righteousness that they themselves might desire. And so it's interesting to think through, right, as we consider all of these things in Romans chapter 9. Our, our interpretation of particular words is going to drastically shift how we walk away from this chapter. And so I, what I want to invite you to is this, is that I would think that the scriptures are suggesting Right, that we need to come to God by faith. That we are in part responsible for that faith. That no, we can't accuse God as unjust, regardless of which interpretation is right. right. Even if the Calvinist world happened to be the world that God made, I still can't say that God's unjust for doing it that way. Okay, so I, I would agree with them. So I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with Calvinism because I'm like, no, that God would be unjust. No, I... God could arrange salvation as he wills. It just seems as though the way he arranged it is that we are all, all nations, all people, called to repent, to turn from our wickedness, right? To no longer live according to our own transgressions and iniquities or abominations as we saw in Ezekiel, right? But we are to turn from those things, to come to him, to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved, right? That we are to come to him by faith, not in our own works, not in our heritage, but in the completed work that Jesus has done on the cross. That is how we're saved. And even if we might object to that, God is just, God is merciful, and God shows mercy on whom he will have mercy. So, perhaps as expected, I didn't get as far as I was hoping to today, <laughs> but it'll just be more to study next week. 
But nonetheless, you and I, we've got to make sure that we come to God by faith, trusting in him for his mercy, not that we deserved it, and recognize that God, in this unfathomable way, chose to love us even when we were his enemies, and that God knew us even before we were born. And so I want to let you know, God knows you, and God loves you, and right, God desires that you would turn to him, trust in him, and so be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We ask for your continued uh, enlightenment, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth as we study your word. Uh, we come to it humbly, Father, recognizing that many believers have tried to discern these things about you uh, as studying these same passages and have come to different conclusions. And so, Lord, ultimately we trust you. We trust you with what is being spoken in your word here, uh, which even Peter says sometimes Paul's writing is hard to understand. Uh, we trust you with our future that we will one day know, <laughs> once we step into eternity, how you arranged all of salvation. But right now, what we do know is that you are good, you are just, you are holy, that you are merciful and gracious. And that, Lord, like the prodigal son, we can come to you, even though we don't deserve to be a son in your household. We come to you acknowledging that we've sinned against heaven, we've sinned against you, and that you amazingly choose to show mercy towards us. You show grace towards us. You, you place a robe and a ring and sandals on us. And, and Lord, you celebrate all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. And so, Lord, we are in awe of your mercy, and we worship you because of it. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We love you guys. Stick with it. Romans chapter 9. Uh, right? Be willing to ask tough questions. Right? Be willing to, to bring up to me verses where you're like, Brian, I don't think your interpretation's right, because what about this verse? Right? Come to the, to the Zoom following the sermon. Uh, and ask questions, delve into the word, uh, and, and can come back next week as we continue reading some more tough passages, right? Even if you're just uh, entertained by watching me sweat as I try to, try to understand these scriptures, right? So we love you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Take care.